The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Okay, Psalm 87. This is a psalm of the sons of Korah, a song. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God, Selah. I will make mention of Rahav and Babylon to those who know me. Behold, O Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia. This one was born there. And of Zion it will be said, This one and that one were born in her. And the Most High himself shall establish her. The Lord will record when he registers the peoples, This one was born there. Selah. Both the singers and the players on instruments say, All my springs are in you. Okay, we have, uh, moving right along in Leviticus, we're in chapter 5. I typed chapter 10 verses 1 through 8 or something this past week. And, uh, oh, wonderful stuff. Um, That's the one if you don't know. Let me read that right now, and then we'll get into the sermon in a second. Um, The sons of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and put incense on it and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. I'll stop right there, but uh, just so you know, the Lord is holy. The Lord is an awesome God, and you know, I'm going to talk about this, uh, well, I'll get into it later, but just don't don't assume that we can tread on the Lord's goodness. He's, He's a great God, but he expects things of us. And we'll see part of that in our sermon today. There are certain things that we have to do, and if we don't, there are certain things we have to do. It's Leviticus 5, 1 through 19, the entire chapter. It's entitled, The Trespass Offering. If a person sins in hearing the utterances of an oath and is a witness, whether he has seen or known of the matter, if he does not tell it, he bears guilt. Or if a person touches any unclean thing, whether it is the carcass of an unclean beast or the carcass of unclean livestock or the carcass of unclean creeping things, and he is unaware of it, he shall be unclean and guilty. Or if he touches human uncleanness, whatever uncleanness with which a man may be defiled and he is unaware of it, when he realizes it, then he shall be guilty. Or if a person swears, speaking thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to do good, Whatever it is that a man may pronounce by an oath, and he is unaware of it, when he realizes it, then he shall be guilty in any of these matters. Then it shall be when he is guilty in any of these matters that he shall confess that he has sinned in that thing. And he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord for his sin, which he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a kid of the goats as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin." If he is not able to bring a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord for his trespass, which he has committed, two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering. And he shall bring them to the priest who shall offer that which is for the sin offering first and wring off its head from its neck, but shall not divide it completely. 
Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar, and the rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. And he shall offer the second as a burnt offering according to the prescribed manner. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin which he has committed, and it shall be forgiven him. But if he is not able to bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, then he who sinned shall bring for his offering one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a sin offering. He shall put no oil on it, nor shall he put frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. Then he shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take his handful of it as a memorial portion, and burn it on the altar according to the offerings made by fire to the Lord. It is a sin offering." The priest shall make atonement for him, for his sin that he has committed in any of these matters, and it shall be forgiven him. The rest shall be the priests as a grain offering. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If a person commits a trespass and sins unintentionally in regard to the holy things of the Lord, then he shall bring to the Lord as his trespass offering a ram, without blemish from the flocks, with your valuation and shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary, as a trespass offering. Then he shall make restitution for the harm that he has done in regard to the holy thing, and shall add one-fifth to it and give it to the priest. So the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering, and it shall be forgiven him. If a person sins and commits any of these things which are forbidden to be done by the commandments of the Lord, though he does not know it, yet he is guilty and shall bear his iniquity. And he shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish from the flock with your valuation as a trespass offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him regarding his ignorance, in which he erred and did not know it, and it shall be forgiven him. It is a trespass offering. He has certainly trespassed against the Lord. Have you ever been pulled over for speeding and had no idea that you were 10 miles an hour over the posted speed limit? Since you had gotten onto the road, there was no limit for the speed, right? And it uh, happens that the last sign was posted just one road before you turned onto it. How can it be your fault when something like that happens? Well, it is. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. no excuse. The same is true with going to another state and finding out that something you are doing is against the law, whereas you do it in your state every day and you do it twice on Sunday. Too bad. So sad. Pay the fine and don't you whine. This is the idea behind the passage today. There are things which caused the people to become guilty, even if they didn't realize it. There are a variety of ways that this could come about. But the fact that they did come about is all that matters. When the person discovered their transgression, they were considered guilty. From there, they were to confess their guilt and then make an offering for atonement or covering over of what they had done. This is what was expected of them. During times when people actually cared about their wrongs, the stream of blood from the sacrifices must have gone on and on. I can look back on my own life and think of countless times that I did something I later realized was not legal. Add in the times that I knew I was doing wrong and the list would pretty much go on forever. You do realize that the speed limit from this church to my house has been set too low. And so it's not really my fault that I drive 60 to get home in a 40 zone, okay? Our text verse comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to 
to them and is committed to us the word of reconciliation. What a great God to do that for us. God has a standard, and that standard is the law. The law has expectations and demands which must be met. And it is truly the foolish person that would think, even for a moment, that they believe that they perfectly met all of these requirements. And yet, there is a guy here in Sarasota, even right down the road from where we are right now, that has his folks in his synagogue believing that he has done exactly that. A friend of mine attends there, and he told me once that his rabbi perfectly meets all 613 of the law's commands. Yep. Well, I could probably show him at least 100 that it is impossible for him to meet because there is no temple and there are no sacrifices, and so what he claims cannot be true. But even apart from that, nobody will ever tell me that they have not coveted. If they were to do so, I would have to call them a liar. Whoops, there's number two. We could go on, but there's no point. We are told in Leviticus that the man who does the things of the law will live by them. The unstated but obvious implication is that the man who does not do the things of the law will die. And I assure you that that guy is going to die someday. One final command in the law, which is kind of the death knell for this rabbi, concerns that of the prophet. The Lord told Moses, who then spoke to the people, that he would raise up a prophet like Moses, who would speak the word of the Lord to the people. He then said that whoever would not hear his words, which he spoke in the Lord's name, well, it would be required of him. That prophet is named Yeshua. And this guy ain't listening to the Lord through Yeshua. I would pray that he realizes the error of his ways before that great day of judgment comes. But for us that know him, that know Yeshua or Jesus, our debt is paid, our transgressions are covered over, and we have peace with God once again. Instead of many sacrifices for many infractions, we have one for all of them. Thank God for Yeshua. Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of everything pictured here in Leviticus. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have just two thoughts for you today. The first is the hidden thing that becomes known. It's verses 1 through 13. Verse 1, if a person sins... The last chapter dealt with the sin offerings to be presented for various groups. There was one for the high priest, being the spiritual head of the people. There was one for the whole congregation. There was one for the ruler of the people. And finally, there was one for individual members of the congregation. Now, specific instances of sins which are committed are identified. They are of a type of less magnitude than those mentioned in chapter 4. In the committing of these sins, there must be an offering for atonement to come about. In the Hebrew, the word says nefesh, or soul. That's what's used for the word person here, if a soul sins. It indicates that there is a will and a desire which drives the person. And it is that part of the person which is being highlighted. In all, three particular types of sin will be mentioned. Verse 1 continues, In hearing the utterance of an oath and is a witness, whether he is seen or known of the matter. The word here for oath is Allah. It indicates a curse, cursing, an oath, swearing, and so on. 
For this reason, some tie the offense being described in with a curse against another person, as in a verbal attack. However, this is not the intent of what is being said. Rather, the main idea is that of a person being asked by the civil authorities to answer on oath, but subsequently refusing to tell what is known concerning the matter which is being looked into. The word is used in Psalm 10, where it is translated as cursing. But if the context is looked at, it is a cursing which is not a verbal attack on another, but rather one which is tied into deceit and oppression. Here's what it says. His mouth is full of cursing, that word, Allah, and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. If one were to use the word oath instead of cursing there, the sense of the offense is better understood. His mouth is full of oaths and deceit and oppression. In other words, it is speaking of the kind of person who voluntarily makes oaths which are deceitful and harmful to others. Mark's money was stolen. Did you know anything about this, John? No, I swear I didn't know a thing about it. As Israel is a society of people which forms a whole, it was an individual's duty and responsibility to provide whatever the authorities needed to maintain the integrity of a properly functioning society, which was ultimately guided by God's divine laws. There are times where a matter was being looked into and an answer to the offense could not be found. In such an instance, it might be that the authorities would ask the whole congregation of people to make a vow, stating that they didn't know anything about the offense which occurred. In this, if one of the people was aware of what occurred, but did not speak up, he was guilty. The law of the unsolved murder, which is found in Deuteronomy 21, verses 1 through 9, might be such an instance. If anyone aware of the offense did not come forward to speak during that rite, he was actually considered in the Lord's eyes to have participated in what had occurred. This had to be remedied. Until the matter was cleared up, it was an offense which carried its own burden. Verse 1 continues, if he does not tell it, he bears guilt. The weight of the guilt was laid upon him. It is a matter of his conscience. He has committed a crime, and he is conscious of the sin he bore. This is evident because if he wasn't conscious, there would otherwise be no reason to bring a sacrifice, as will be prescribed in these coming verses. This is a willful concealing of a matter which affects some other part of the Lord's overall control of what the people needed to do through his law. Of this type of oath, which is demanded of another, an example is found in the New Testament at the trial of our Lord Jesus. Here's what it says. And the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and beat him, and others struck him with the palm of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you. Jesus was placed under oath by the high priest. Because of the position of the high priest, he was bound by the law of Moses, which, by the way, he gave to Israel to tell the truth. He did, and therefore he remained without guilt in the matter. There is an irony that runs through the Bible that is astonishing when it's properly considered. Verse 2, or if a person touches any unclean thing, 
The second type of trespass is for that of defilement due to touching something unclean. Here the noun tame or unclean is used for the first time in the Bible. It comes from the verb tame, which is the act of defilement, such as when Dinah, Jacob's daughter, was defiled by Hamor, the son of Shechem in Genesis chapter 34. It is a word which will become common in the Hebrew society from this point on. If a person came into contact with something defiled, they took on that state of defilement until it was dealt with. There are a host of things which would make one unclean in this way, such as, verse 2 continues, whether it is the carcass of an unclean beast, or the carcass of unclean livestock, or the carcass of unclean creeping things. The word nebelah, or carcass, is introduced into the Bible. Now, you've got to figure, it's been 2,100 years of human existence to this point, and this word has never been used, a carcass. It indicates what is left after death, a corpse. In touching a corpse, defilement was transferred to the person who touched it. Three categories are given to show what corpse was included. The carcass of an unclean beast would be something like a pig. The carcass of unclean livestock might be something like a donkey. And the carcass of unclean creeping things would be something like a lizard, a reptile of some kind. The general categories are given to signify all unclean animals in regards to dietary laws. Verse 2 continues, and he is unaware of it. There are four likely reasons that I could think of why a person would be unaware of this type of defilement. The first would be because he simply didn't know that he had touched something dead. The second would be because he was unaware of the requirement of the law which told him of his defilement. The third would be that he had forgotten that he had touched something dead. And the fourth would be that he willingly ignored the offense. An example of someone doing exactly this is found in the book of Judges. So Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now, to his surprise, a young lion came roaring against him, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson well. After some time, when he returned to get her, he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the carcass of the lion. He took some of it in his hands and went along eating. When he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them, and they also ate. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. Samson was certainly aware of having touched the defiled animal. But he may have been unaware of the law, which is unlikely, or he may have simply ignored the command of the law. The parents became guilty through the act of eating the honey as well. But they were, at this time, unaware of the defilement. In all three cases, they were required to follow the procedures of the law given here when the trespass became known. Now, I'm going to stop right there before I go on, and I'm going to say if you think of Samson as a picture of Israel, it all starts to come into a, a clearer focus. And the reason why I say that is because these laws are given for a reason. And when the Lord repeats an instance of a violation of a law in the Bible, he's doing it for a reason. So when you're reading the Bible and you get to a passage like this and you don't understand it and you say, why is that there? Well, you say, Oh, I was at the superior word, and I listened to that passage on the trespass offering. And now I know that everything pictures something else, and you can put these things together. This is why we study the law, is because everything points to Jesus Christ. Now, you're not going to get a lot of symbolism about Christ today, because I've explained most of it in past sermons. 
I'll give you a little bit. But you are learning how to understand the rest of the Bible and what is being pictured in redemptive history. So you're not wasting your time. And it may be like, oh, this is so boring until you get to something like that. And you say, that wasn't boring at all. I now know. Study the law. Understand why God put these things in here and be pleased to rejoice in the word of God and pursuing Jesus Christ through it, all pictured in these ancient passages looking forward to him. The matter extending to that which is unknown is important in that it shows that those who are even unaware of their defilement are still guilty, like the parents of Samson. It is an exhortation then to be aware of one's surroundings and not to simply assume that passing through life is an excuse for not paying heed to what is going on around them. This is made explicit with the following words. Verse 2 continues, He also shall be unclean and guilty. This by default is a ceremonial and not a moral guilt. The conscience is not naturally defiled by touching a carcass. However, because this is a part of the ceremonial law, a person is considered defiled ceremonially, and thus they bear guilt until they take the necessary action to have that guilt removed. Verse 3, or if he touches human uncleanness. This is another new word in scripture, tuma. It is uncleanness which comes from being unclean. In other words, a human that is unclean because of defilement is in a state of defilement. A woman in the time of her period is in this state, according to the Bible. A person who has a discharge is in this state, and so on. If any person touches such uncleanness, they too become defiled. This word is used in the instructions to Samson's mother for the rule and conduct of his life. Here's what it says. So the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God. Very awesome. But I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. And he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. Tuma, that word we're looking at. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Verse 3 continues. Whatever uncleanness with which a man may be defiled, and he is unaware of it, when he realizes it, then he shall be guilty. As with defilement of the previous verse, so it is here. The person is considered defiled whether they realize it or not. Once realized, they were to consider themselves guilty because they were, in fact, guilty. Verse 4, or if a person swears, speaking thoughtlessly with his lips. Now a third way of becoming guilty is introduced. It is through the act of speaking in a certain manner. The word swears here is not meant in the way we use it today, such as in using a bad word. Rather, it is swearing as in an oath or a vow, like it was earlier, okay? When a person so swears through speaking thoughtlessly, then guilt may come about. The words speaking thoughtlessly are a single word in the Hebrew, bata. It's a very rare word found only four times in the Bible. It means to babble. From that comes the idea of speaking rashly or unadvisedly. It is used in the Psalms when speaking of the great lawgiver himself, Moses. Here's what it says in Psalm 106. They angered him also at the waters of strife so that it went ill with Moses on account of them because they rebelled against his spirit so that he, meaning Moses, spoke rashly, bata, with his lips. So what we have in this verse is a person who speaks an oath in a rash manner to do something, but they don't consider the oath afterwards, forgetting it when the trouble is subsided. 
A perfect example of this is found in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Here's what it says there. Now David had said, surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow is in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him. And he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. David made the vow to kill all of the males of Nabal's household. But Nabal's wife, Abigail, came to pacify David over the rude treatment that he had received. David was, in fact, pacified. He never followed through with this vow. But he was now guilty because of it. If it was brought to his memory, he needed to rectify the matter. Another such vow is found in Acts 23, where a group of Jews made a vow to not eat or drink until they had killed the Apostle Paul. It was less rash than pre-planned, but it was still a vow which was not fulfilled. Unfortunately for them, Christ had died in fulfillment of the law. Thus, any sacrifice they made would have been unsuccessful in removing their guilt. Only in coming to Christ could they hope for their guilt to be removed. Verse 4 continues, to do evil or to do good. This is an idiom which is all-encompassing concerning matters which fall under the extremes of good and evil, and thus it represents all human actions. If a vow is made from one extreme to the other or anywhere in the middle, it is to be performed. If it is not, or if it was a rash vow that should not be performed, one is still guilty for the vow which has been made. Verse 4 continues, Whatever it is that a man may pronounce by an oath, he is unaware of it. When he realizes it, then he shall be guilty in any of these matters. Again, as before, once the matter was brought to the attention of the offender, the person was guilty before the law. In being guilty, he would then need to seek pardon through the required sacrifices which are to be prescribed. Verse 5, And it shall be when he is guilty in any of these matters that he shall confess that he has sinned in that thing. This covers all of the offenses so far noted. One, remaining silent in hearing the utterance of an oath, two, touching something unclean which brings about defilement, and three, making a rash oath. In any such instances, when the matter is brought to mind, the person becomes guilty through the offense. When that happens, then the matter needs to be confessed as sin because he has, in fact, sinned. The necessity to confess shows that the offering itself is not sufficient without the confession. This is an advanced taste of the gospel itself. Jesus Christ is our sin offering. And yet, without confession of one's need for Jesus, the offering is not accepted on his behalf. In other words, there is no such thing as universal salvation. Atonement is unlimited in its potential scope, but it is limited in actuality. This is built upon by Paul in the book of Romans, chapter 10. He says, the word is near you in your heart and in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Confession, whether of sin or for salvation, is necessary for things to happen. Verse 6, And he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord. The verb asham, which speaks of being guilty, was seen in chapter 4 and in verse 2 of this chapter. It is now changed to the noun form, asham, which indicates the offering for that guilt. Here it is called a trespass offering. This is what is required for the sin committed, which is now realized. 
It is, in essence, a fine which has become due for one who is guilty. Without the payment of the fine, the guilt remains. It is an anticipatory look to Jesus Christ, who is said to be our asham, or guilt offering, in Isaiah chapter 53. Here's what it says. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you made his soul an offering for sin. That word asham. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. As each offering unfolds and is explained, we continue to find hints of Christ to come, who alone could fulfill these countless types and pictures which were given to Israel until his incarnation. Everything points to Christ. Verse 6 continues, for his sin which he has committed. The words in Hebrew here actually say, for his sin which he has sinned. To understand why I mention this now, stay tuned for verse 7. Verse 6 continues, a female from the flock, a lamb, or a kid of the goats as a sin offering. In chapter 4, the required offering for the sin of one of the common people, which we looked at last week, was to be a female hairy goat or a male lamb. Here, the same two are required. The only difference is that both, either lamb or goat, were to be females of the flock. The lesser valued of the species was specified, most likely because these are sins of ignorance which have come to mind. Therefore, the Lord is granting an allowance for their now realized transgressions. Verse 6 continues, So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin. Through confession and offering, the atonement would then be handled by the attending priest, and the sin would be covered. It is, as with all such things, looking forward to the work of Christ, who is both our offering and the one who offers our offering. The entire process of our atonement, I'm talking about in Christ, is of by and from him. We simply need to confess and to receive what he has already done. It is not a difficult thing in one way, and yet it is something which is immensely difficult in another because it requires faith. Verse 7, if he is not able to bring a lamb, the Hebrew here forms a metonymy, which says, and if his hand is not able to reach what is sufficient for a lamb, in other words, the hand is used to describe what the hand acquires. It's something like saying Sam's head is not able to attain what is necessary for a degree. The head is being used to signify the knowledge required for the degree. Here the words are intended to mean that the person is too poor to be able to afford one of the two animals. In such a case, provision is made for him. Verse 7 continues, Then he shall bring to the Lord for his trespass which he has committed... The words here say, for his trespass, which he has sinned. Verse 6 said, for his sin, which he has sinned. Different words from verse 6 are used to describe the same offense. Thus, the words trespass and sin are considered synonymous in this context. Verse 7 continues, two turtle doves or two young pigeons. These are the same offerings which are allowed for the poor, which were seen in Leviticus 1 verse 14. The Lord is granting allowances for the poor so that none are excluded from his mercy. Despite their lowly state in the society, they were of no less value in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 7 continues, one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering. Here there's a difference between the birds and the other animals. One was to be for sin and the other was to be for a burnt offering. It may seem curious at first, but it becomes obvious when considering the size of the birds. 
Because the fat parts of the bird could not be separated from the bird as with the other animals, and as it was the fat part that was to be burned on the altar. And further, because burning the bird completely on the altar would then destroy the nature of the trespass offering by making it a whole burnt offering, two separate birds are used. The first would represent the Lord's portion, which would be burnt on the altar, while the second one would become the priest's portion of the offering. It all deals with the type of offering. Everything has to point to Christ, and the typology is very, very particular so that we don't lose the typology. Verse 8, And he shall bring them to the priest who shall offer that which is for the sin offering first, and wring off its head from its neck, but shall not divide it completely. This is similar to the procedures of Leviticus 1, verse 15. Between those two verses are found the only uses of the word malak in the entire Bible. It is a word which appears to mean wringing the neck. The head is wrung off, but it is not completely divided from the body. We can now say goodbye to the word malak from the Bible. You'll never see it again. Verse 9, Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar, and the rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. The wringing of the bird's neck and the sprinkling and pouring out of the blood give us the same picture as for the other animals. Christ's death was violent, but it was offered for the sins of the richest, even to the poorest of people. Each sacrifice has its own typical fulfillment in the work of Jesus Christ. Verse 9 continues, it is a sin offering. This is called a sin offering, but nothing has been instructed about the blood being applied to the horns of the altar as was mandated in chapter 4. This and several other variations of the details show that the priest had to be attentive to the specifics of each offering, carefully ensuring that they were minutely fulfilled. Verse 10, And he shall offer the second as a burn offering according to the prescribed manner. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sins, which he has committed, and it shall be forgiven him. The words, according to the prescribed manner, are given to direct the priest's attention back to the original instruction for the burnt offerings, which were way back in chapter 1. And following those already set guidelines, the priest would make atonement for the offender, and the sin would be considered as forgiven. Verse 11, But if he is not able to bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, then he who sinned shall bring for his offering one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a sin offering. For the very poorest of the land, an even more merciful hand was extended. They were allowed to bring one-tenth of an ephah, or less than one-half of a gallon of fine flour. This was to be considered their acceptable sin offering. Verse 11 continues, He shall put no oil on it, nor shall he put frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. As was seen in the grain offering, the flour pictured Christ. Oil symbolizes the presence of the Spirit, and frankincense pictures works. All of these were offered in the grain offering, but only the flour is offered here. This is a sin offering intended for atonement. It demonstrates to us that God finds sin offensive and detestable. When sin is present, the spirit is quenched and our works are unacceptable. You see how everything points to something if you just think it through. Only in the offering of Christ can the sins be removed and atonement result. Verse 12, then he shall bring it to the priest and the priest shall take his handful of it as a memorial portion and burn it on the altar according to the offerings made by fire to the Lord. It is a sin offering. The procedure is similar to Leviticus 2 verse 2, only that there was to be no oil or frankincense in the handful. Rather, the fine flour alone would be burnt as a memorial portion of the whole as an offering for sin. 
Though it is an offering without blood, and this is important, it is still considered as a blood offering on behalf of this poor sinner. The burning of the flower still gives the needed picture of the sufferings of Christ. Verse 13, the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin that he has committed in any of these matters, and it shall be forgiven him. The rest shall be the priests as a grain offering. In any of these matters is speaking of one of the three types of offenses which were mentioned in verses 1 through 4. This non-blood grain offering has been accepted as a blood offering. Christ is our bread of life, and he gave his body for us, even for the poorest of people. Despite there being no death in reality at the altar, there is death in picture for us to consider and to be thankful for. Even the poorest of all sinners has a suitable, merciful offering to God in Christ Jesus. It is the law of the Lord, the standard by which our judgment will come, and any single infraction of the word will mean the sounding of the condemnation drum. How can I ever meet these commands? Many speak of things I don't even know I'd done. The bar is too high. I cannot attain to his demands. I transgressed so many, and all it takes is one. But now I understand what I had before not understood. I can be deemed as if justified in every precept, as if not failing one. What I thought was against me was for my good, because every detail has been fulfilled in his son. Through a simple act of faith, I am restored and whole. Now there is no condemnation. I am entered on heaven's roll. Our second thought today is the holy things of the Lord. It's verses 14 through 19. Verse 14, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, these are the exact same words, letter by letter, as were last seen in Leviticus 4, verse 1. A new thought is now being introduced for us to consider. Verse 15, if a person commits a trespass, a new type of offense is now introduced. It is the word ma'al, which comes from a primitive root, and it essentially means to cover up. It is used in a figurative sense, as in acting covertly and thus treacherously. Verse 15 continues, and sins unintentionally in regard to the holy things of the Lord. The holy things of the Lord is generally considered to mean things like neglecting to redeem the firstborn, not observing the law of the tithe, failing to offer the first fruits, and things like that. It is a defrauding in spiritual matters. The intent of the words sins unintentionally is the same as before. When the matter is brought to the offender's attention, it was to be rectified. Withholding such holy things was considered stealing from God, and it was an offense to him. This is recorded in Malachi chapter 3 with these words, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, In what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. Verse 15 continues, Then he shall bring to the Lord as his trespass offering a ram without blemish from the flocks with your valuation in shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary as a trespass offering. The Hebrew here is obscure enough where it can mean one of two things. It might mean the ram is to be valued and then a fifth is added to its price. Or the value of the holy thing which he defrauded was to be set, then a fifth was to be added to its price to make the total fine, and then a ram was to be added in for the satisfaction of the offering, the ram being worth a set price according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The latter makes more sense. It wouldn't seem reasonable to have to pay only a ram when the tithe may have included rams and goats and oxen and grain and all kinds of other stuff and even more. This appears to be borne out by the next verse. The ram here is a symbol of strength. 
It is a defender of the flock as it can butt with its horns. The symbolism here fits Christ perfectly and that these holy things of the Lord were to be provided for those who had no inheritance of their own or who were living in poverty. This is true with the priests in that they had no inheritance of land and were dependent on the people's offerings for their livelihood. As far as the poor, this was especially true with the tithes. These things were there to provide for them. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 14. At the end of every third year, and I want everybody here to remember this, I'm going to stop and I'm going to say it because some people may not know this, have never heard this before. Tithing in the Old Testament was not giving 10% of what you owned, okay? It was not. It was giving 10% of what you owned every third year. If you're ever in a church and they say you need to tithe and give 10% to this church, tell them one, tithing is obsolete. It's a part of the law which is annulled in Christ and we're not under the law. And secondly, if you want to stick to the tithing of the law, then everybody here, I want you to give 10% every third year. Okay, don't let people bully you around like that. But I'm going to read this to you now. At the end of every third year, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year and store it up within your gates. And the Levite, because he has no portion nor inheritance with you, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates may come and eat and be satisfied that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. Like the ram who defends the flock, the Lord is said to in the 68th Psalm to be a father of the fatherless and a defender of the widows. The symbolism is seen here in this ram offering. Verse 16, And he shall make restitution for the harm that he has done in regard to the holy thing, and shall add one-fifth to it and give it to the priest. This seems to lean to the thought that it is not the ram to which a fifth is added, but to the original amount defrauded. As I said, it would otherwise not make any sense. The amount defrauded could be an enormous amount in comparison to a ram. Once that was taken care of, then the ram was to be presented in satisfaction of the guilt. Verse 16 continues, So the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering, and it shall be forgiven him. The procedures for the ram of the trespass offering are found in Leviticus chapter 7. We'll be there in about six months. And they closely match those of the sin offerings with a few exceptions. Actually, I think we'll be there in two more sermons. Verse 17, If a person sins and commits any of these things which are forbidden to be done, By the commandments of the Lord, though he does not know it, yet he is guilty and he shall bear his iniquity. In verses 17 through 19, we have a partial repeat of what was just seen in verses 14 through 16. The difference is that in those of verses 14 through 16 were a matter of certainty. The offense was known, the amount could be set, and restitution had to be made. Here, however, there is a doubt in the matter. A person may have forgotten the details of his error, or he may feel that he has erred without really knowing even why. In such a case, even though he is unsure of his guilt, he is still guilty. I would call this the state of constant stomach problems. It is as if a person is getting ulcers from the nagging guilt on his mind, and he needs to have it taken away. Verse 18, And he shall bring it to the priest, a ram without blemish from the flock, with your valuation as a trespass offering. When the person who feels he is guilty comes to the priest, he is to bring a ram without blemish, just as with one of certain guilt. The valuation was to be set by the priest, just as before, but nothing is said of adding one-fifth addition. 
The person has come forward over a matter he's not even sure of and is not being penalized for his acknowledgement. Instead, the ram itself will be the only addition and which is meant for atonement. Verse 18 continues. So the priest shall make atonement for him regarding his ignorance in which he has erred and did not know it and it shall be forgiven him. The life of the ram is sufficient for the sin of ignorance where the person erred and didn't even know it. He stands forgiven because of the substitute. The picture of Christ's work for us is marvelous. We have certainly offended God in 10 million ways that we have forgotten about, and yet the debt is paid and we stand justified before the Lord despite those sins which are known but to him. Verse 19 finishes with these words, it is a trespass offering. He is certainly trespassed against the Lord. Asham hu asham asham le Yehovah. Trespass offering it, trespassing, he has trespassed against the Lord. The intent here is that despite not having the fifth part added in, it is still considered a trespass offering. In ignorance of the law or whatever reason existed that brought the matter to the mind now, there was no excuse for an infraction against the Lord. The sacrifice was necessary and it was accepted as such by the Lord. The special significance tied to this trespass offering is that there is a need for satisfaction of such offenses against the Lord and that these types and shadows lead to the antitype which is found in Christ. I cited you Isaiah 53. He is the antitype. He is the trespass offering. He is the final, fully sufficient, perfect, and complete satisfaction for the sins of the world. Nothing needs to be added in, and all debts are paid in Christ Jesus. And speaking of debts, a friend who watches these sermons asked about the sin offering requirements last week. He sent me an email. In them, the least valuable offering which was authorized, this is the sin offerings of chapter 4, for a layman was a female lamb. He asked, what about a poor person? If they couldn't afford a sin offering, wouldn't that be a detriment for them as there was no other way at that time to make themselves right with God? I told him that the trespass offerings that we would look at this week would do just that. I mean, you can bring just a half a gallon of, of wheat. The severity of the sin offering, though, required a lamb. If a poor person couldn't afford one, they could have someone else pay for their offering. Something seen in the book of Acts concerning the paying of a vow for another person. There was also the Day of Atonement, which was given to cover their sins. And also, this is what the tithing system itself was set up to do. It was there for the poor people of the land to use, as prescribed in Deuteronomy. And finally, if they had no access to help by a friend, or from the collection of tithes to pay their sin offering, they could always sell themselves for the money in order to pay the offering. A Hebrew slave was to be given exceptional treatment during his time of servitude, and he was to be given provision when that time of slavery ended, which was at set intervals which were prescribed by the Lord. The question is, would a person be willing to sell himself into slavery in order to be obedient to the law of the sin offering? If so, then it showed that his priorities were on the Lord and not on himself. In the end, we're all slaves to something. If we are a slave to sin, we cannot be a slave of the Lord. And if we are a slave of the Lord, then we are free from the condemnation which arises from sin. Everybody here knows my email address, a bond servant of Christ. That's an unpaid person. I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. I want everybody to know that. My debt is paid through him and I am now under him. 
The law was exceptionally gracious in its treatment of the people, and in the end, it is merely a reflection of the even more exceptional treatment which is found in Jesus Christ. And just so you know, we have the book of Leviticus here. It's the third book of the Bible, and it's a book which has a lot of sacrifices and a lot of death, and you think, oh, I just can't listen to any more of this. But I explained to you in the the, uh, first uh, sermon of the book of Leviticus that the book of Genesis pictures God the Father. He's the creator, and he's the one that set everything in motion, and he's in charge of all things that are going on. And then you have the book of Exodus, which pictures God the Son. He's the redeemer. He's the one that brought us out of the land of Egypt, and we're redeemed before we're sanctified. But guess what? Now we're in the book of Leviticus, and it pictures the Holy Spirit, the sanctification of God's people. He is taking care of our sin, and it's shown in these sacrifices, but they're already redeemed. This is to take care of things that have happened after they've been redeemed. They're being sanctified through these. And the death of these animals, as tragic as it seems to our sensibilities, is nothing compared to what Jesus Christ went through. Nothing. And so he died for our sins, and he is our sanctifier through the power of the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, it's called the Spirit of Christ right? The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God is interchangeable in these other things. The book of Leviticus is showing us these things for a reason. It's to point us to Jesus Christ. And along the way, as I said, we're reading the Bible and we can say, man, I remember what Charlie said back in Leviticus chapter five about that. And now I see what's going on here. It's important. It's important to go through this book of Leviticus and then to go through Numbers and then through Deuteronomy. And I figured it out last night. It's going to be 2,872 years, but we're going to get to the book of Romans and I'm going to explain all of it to you, okay? It's wonderful stuff. Think of sanctification when you're reading this book and don't worry about the sacrifices. Everything dies. Every single thing on this earth dies and everything on this earth eats something that had to die every single day. Everything. Okay, this is the world in which we live, and we're going to a world where this won't be the case. But until we get there, this is where we're at. Our closing verse comes from 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. But as I said, he's just propitiation for the sins of the whole world. But you must call on Jesus. It is not automatic. He died for every person. Every person on earth is saved through Jesus Christ potentially. Not everybody is saved actually. So what you must do is you must say, I cannot save myself. I'm not going to offend God by trying to work my way to heaven because he's already done the work and I've received what <laughs> Jesus Christ has done. I apply the shed blood of Calvary's cross to my life. And I accept it and you will be saved. Will, past tense, done, can never be taken away. No such thing as loss of salvation. Anybody that teaches otherwise is teaching you something to keep you in bondage so that you sit in your church and you're afraid and he can tell you how to conduct your life. This book right here tells you how to conduct your life. Okay, that's all you need. Call on Jesus, be saved, and then get into that word. Next week is Leviticus 6. It's verses 1 through 30. This is going to be one long poem when we get to that baby. This will hopefully be a load of fun. It's entitled The Mediator's Duties, Part 1. That'll be our eighth Leviticus sermon, okay? And I'll tell you this, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if you have a lifetime of sin heaped up behind you, he can wash it away and he can purify you completely and wholly. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. 
Okay? And remember, the sanctification is the through you part. You're being sanctified. Now you can tell other people about Jesus and do good things and keep working your way in pleasing the Lord throughout this life because he's already worked your way to get to heaven. Okay? Our poem today is called The Trespass Offering. If a person sins in hearing the utterance of an oath and is a witness, yes, the truth is spilt. Whether he is seen or known of the matter, if he does not tell it, he bears guilt. Or if a person touches any unclean thing, whether it is the carcass of an unclean beast or the carcass of unclean livestock or the carcass of unclean creeping things from the greatest to the least, and unaware of it is he, he also shall be unclean and guilty. Or if he touches human uncleanness, whatever uncleanness with which a man may be defiled, and he is unaware of it, when he realizes it, then he shall be guilty, needing to be reconciled. Or if a person swears, speaking thoughtlessly, with his lips to do evil or to do good, whatever it is that a man may pronounce by an oath, and he is unaware of it, it was not understood. When he realizes it, so shall it be, then in any of these matters, guilty shall be he. And it shall be when he is guilty in any of these matters at hand that he shall confess that he has sinned in that thing that he does not understand. And he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord for his sin which he has committed in this thing, a female from the flock, a lamb or a kid of the goats as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him, so shall it be concerning his sin. If he is not able to bring a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord for his trespass which he has committed two turtle doves or two young pigeons according to this word one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering such shall be his proffering and he shall bring them to the priest who shall offer that which is for the sin offering first you see and wring off its head from its neck but shall not divide it completely then he shall sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar he shall do this thing and the rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. And he shall offer the second as a burnt offering, according to the prescribed manner, a task somewhat grim. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for a sin which he has committed, and it shall be forgiven him. But if he is not able to bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons he cannot bring, then he who sins shall bring his offering, one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour, as a sin offering." He shall put no oil on it, nor shall he put frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. This to you I now submit. Then he shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take his handful of it, according to this word, as a memorial portion, and burn it on the altar, according to the offerings made by fire to the Lord. It is a sin offering, such is to be this proffering. The priest shall make atonement for him, for his sin which he has committed in any of these matters, any such thing, and it shall be forgiven him. The rest shall be the priests as a grain offering. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, These are the words he was then relaying. If a person commits a trespass and sins unintentionally in regard to the holy things of the Lord, then he shall bring to the Lord as his trespass offering a ram without blemish from the flocks, according to this word. With your valuation in shekels of silver, he shall bring, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, as a trespass offering. And he shall make restitution for the harm that he has done in regard to the holy thing and shall add one-fifth to it and give it to the priest. So shall be his offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering and it shall be forgiven him. The Lord shall forgive his trespass in this thing. If a person sins and commits any of these things which are forbidden to be done by the commandments of the Lord, though he does not know it, yet he is guilty and shall bear his iniquity. So stands the word. 
and he shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish from the flock, with your valuation as a trespass offering, so the priest shall make atonement for him, in which he erred his ignorance this thing regarding. And he did not know it, and it shall be forgiven him, as to you I submit. It is a trespass offering, so understand the word. He has certainly trespassed against the Lord. Lord, how many countless times have we offended you in things we have done and those things left undone as well? We have hidden our hands from what is right and have earned a one-way path to hell. And yet through one marvelous offering, the sins of the world are taken away if we but come to Jesus, if we to him call out and pray. Marvelous are you, O God, for what you have done for us. You have come in human flesh. You have come, O Lord Jesus. Thank you for being our substitute. Now hear our praise. Thank you, O God Almighty. We sing to you now and for eternal days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus Christ, our Asham, our trespass offering. He came and he did what we couldn't do, and then he gave his life up as a sacrifice for us. What a marvelous thing you have done in the person of Jesus Christ. I just can never get tired of thinking of it every time I do. I just can't imagine why you would do this for people. If I'm representative of the human race, wow, you are a great God. That's all I can say. Why would you do this for a guy like me? And I'm sure many people here feel the same. How undeserving we are of your grace and your mercy and the blood of your son. Thank you for Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray for those that we prayed for earlier. And some I'll miss by name, I'm sure. But we have Paul and we have Graham. We have uh, the Bridges who are traveling and Dad and Ann who are traveling. We have people that will be leaving right after church to go back home. And we have uh, other people, Mary, who is... uh, Uh, going into hospice and is in her final moments. And Lord, we just ask you be with all of these people through their trials and to deliver them to where they're going, whether it's uh, uh, to another state for a vacation or for a summer, or if it's to your hands in uh, eternal glory, whatever it is, be with your people and comfort them in their times of trial and in their, their week ahead, each person here, bless them, take care of them, meet their needs according to your great wisdom. And we glorify you, Lord, because you are infinitely worthy of it. We do so, and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen.